Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those eighteen who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. You might have been like me. I think it's maybe December, maybe early January, that I started reading about this terrible disease that was afflicting people in China. And that felt like a very long way away. It's somewhere that I've never been, somewhere that I didn't have any particular plans to visit. I thought it was sad. Lots of things are sad. Didn't think much more about it. And then we started hearing about an outbreak in Italy. And that felt a lot closer to home. We've got a lot of Italians in our church and they're really special to me. But I have to admit that me and a lot of people in Britain looked at that and thought, well, Italian culture is different from ours. They're much warmer than us. They hug each other and kiss each other and we're really cold and reserved. So we're okay. It's not gonna come to us and afflict us like it's afflicting them. And then of course it spread to Spain and France and it was getting nearer. But still we could rationalise that we were different. Our cold culture might protect us from this virus that was being spread person to person. And of course, today, it's almost certain that we are the second worst affected country in the world in terms of numbers of deaths. All of those thoughts that I had about why we weren't going to be affected like everybody else, why we were safer. I was just wrong. I looked at myself, I'm a female, that makes me lower risk in this situation. I don't smoke, I'm quite healthy, I'm reasonably young and I felt pretty safe. But now we've seen a lot of devastation in this country. Many of you will know people who have died. I do. Some of our church family have been really ill and we thank God that they've recovered. And we're starting to get a sense of the economic pain that this is gonna to bring to many. And it's not finished yet. Now, those behaviors that I told you about, those thoughts I had when I first started hearing about this really bad thing that was happening a long way away Thankfully for me, actually, it's quite a common way to respond to hearing bad news. And the kinds of thoughts that I had are a form of what some people would call victim blaming. The thing about humans, one of the things that distinguishes us from the animals, and I believe this is something that God has given us, is our ability, our obsession even, to find causes for things. Something happens, we want to know why. And that is really great. That's how we discovered penicillin, 
not we, that guy, but you know, something happened and he wanted to understand why. So we have penicillin. That's why I can take some water and some crushed up grain and smoogle them together and stick them in a fire and get bread. Because at some point, some humans noticed these different interactions between these things. And they tried to find out why and to repeat the experiment and they nailed bread making. Humans are amazing at looking for and at finding causes. Now, for most of human history and still, despite what you might think, actually in the majority of the world, humans would tend to look for causes that were both natural and supernatural. So when something really great or something really terrible happens, people would tend to look at a mix of natural factors and supernatural factors. Angels, demons, a god, gods, blessings, curses, the evil eye. And that has been true for all of human history. Today, in this particular cultural moment in the West, many people would say that actually they only believe in natural causes. But that's a very recent thing. And it's actually quite a unique thing to certain cultures in the world. It's not the majority of humans. But this kind of behavior that I was talking about, this victim blaming, it actually fits in with that human desire to find causes. And although it sounds like a terrible thing to do, to look for the reason why something happened to someone, it's actually a very natural response to hearing something that affects us. If I hear about someone like a woman being attacked at night on the street, I could be overwhelmed with fear. I could feel unsafe all the time. So my instinct is to find ways that she's different from me, to find things that she did that mean that she carries some responsibility, she was more at risk. And so that's why we say things to each other like, oh, you know, women shouldn't go out late at night on their own, which sadly might be true, but actually we're missing a lot there. We're missing compassion for the victim, which I think actually should be our biggest response when we hear something like that. And also we're not looking at the actual cause, the perpetrator. No, we're, we're just trying to distance ourselves from what happens so that we can feel safe. If that virus is only affecting those warm, lovely Italians, then I'm safe, except it was wrong. And I think this story that Kezia read to us today, we see a form of that victim blaming in there, a very common form actually. So some people have brought this story to Jesus over a really traumatic event that had happened. For us to think ourselves into this, maybe we wanna cast our minds back and think about some of the attacks on worshippers that have happened in our time. Maybe we think about the attacks on churches at Easter in Sri Lanka last year. Maybe we think about the attack on a mosque in Christchurch in New Zealand. Maybe we think about the attacks on, in synagogues in the US and in so many places in the world. And we can understand some of the trauma that an event like this brought about. And so they bring it to Jesus. And there's this, there's this question, were they to blame? Were they worse sinners than everybody else? 
It's a common attitude. Even in that secular West, even among people who claim to only look for natural causes for events, I've still found this attitude that people get what they deserve and attempt to somehow put a moral explanation on events that happen to people. What does Jesus say? It's a really bold, bold answer. In verse three, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Verse three, I tell you, no. No. Not really much more explanation than that. Now, I wonder what you think of when you think of the Bible. I think that probably most of you listening understand that the Bible is not just a book, but it's a collection of many books. And actually the word Bible means library. So some people have said that a good way to think about the Bible is to think about it like a library. And I think that is a helpful analogy, except that one of the problems with libraries is that sometimes they have a slightly random collection of books that aren't related to each other. In recent weeks, we've seen politicians and public figures criticised because as they've all been working and broadcasting from home, we've seen their bookshelves behind them with a sometimes interesting choice of books. But the Bible isn't like a random library. Another analogy that you might find helpful is of the Bible as a reading list. When I was at university and I was studying a particular topic or event in history, I'd be given a reading list and it would be several different books, sometimes articles written by various authors, sometimes in different genres. And it was only by engaging with the whole of that list, reading all of it, that I could really understand the breadth of the events that I was looking at. And the Bible is a bit like a reading list. It's a collection of writings by different authors, inspired by God, in different genres, that somehow despite writing at different times in different places, responding to different situations, tell a unified story and teach us a unified message. And the danger is when we take one section of it in isolation, one thing off the reading list, we can go in completely the wrong direction. We need to read the whole of the list. So as an example, you might be familiar with the book of Proverbs. And many people, even people who aren't religious, find wisdom in the book of Proverbs because much of it fits with our experience of life. If you're lazy all year, you don't do the stuff on your farm, then when winter comes, you're gonna go hungry. That makes sense. We see that, we get that. Except that if we really think about it, we might agree that it's generally true, but we might also think of people we know who work very hard and yet don't have enough. And we certainly know that there are people in our world today who work very hard and yet go hungry. So it might be generally applicable, but it's not universally applicable. Jesus himself taught that it rains on the just and the unjust, 
And when we hear that, we have to remember that he's speaking in a context where rain is good and a sign of blessing. Because to me, not so much. And in that context, rain is a sign of blessing. It's a good thing. It's a thing that you welcome. And God gives it to everyone, good and bad. So that's, that's Proverbs. And if we only read that book on the reading list, we might form a particular impression of how the world works. But it's not the only book on the reading list. And there's another really important book in the Bible. And if you haven't read it, then I would really encourage you to read it. It's the book of Job, spelled Job. And Job is an incredible, inspiring character. He is someone who is really trying to live his life in a way that truly pleases God. And that doesn't just mean that he's doing kind of religious acts, but he's generous. He looks out for people who are poor and afflicted and helps them. He's a good employer. He's a faithful husband. He's a pretty good guy. And yet a series of terrible tragedies come upon him. There's a scene that's particularly dramatic where one by one a series of messengers come in and tell Job, your, your adult children, they're all dead. Your, your finances completely collapsed. Just one after the other, this bad news arrives. And then we see a bit later on, Job, his health just completely collapses as well. He's lost everything. And he sits in the dust and he weeps. And his friends come. And at first, his friends, I think, respond in a really good way. I think it's a really good model of how we can comfort people because they just, for seven days and nights, they sit with him in his place of mourning and they weep with him. No advice, just presence. And just when you think these are good friends, they open their mouths and it all goes horribly wrong. Because these friends, I don't really know on what basis they say these things, but they make the assumption that Job is getting his just desserts. And I'll give you an example of one of the things that one of them says, a guy called Eliphaz in Job 4, verses 7 and 8. He says, consider now, who, being innocent, has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I've observed, those who plough evil and those who sow trouble reap it. They go on and on in this vein, all of them. And the really interesting thing is that Job doesn't know what we know. Job doesn't know about this council of heaven that went on that explains what happened to him. Job doesn't know about Jesus, the innocent one who died. Job doesn't have that information and yet he knows enough of the character of God and the way the world works to resist what his friends are saying to him, which is actually a very powerful thing to be able to do when you're at rock bottom and you've lost everything and your so-called friends are telling you it's all your own fault to resist. But that's what Job does. And then at the end, God comes in and he speaks and they fall silent. And God puts them all in their place, Job and the friends. 
But then he commends Job. He calls him my servant Job. And he tells the friends that they were wrong in the advice that they gave, the explanations that they came up with. And the story ends actually with Job being used by God to restore these friends. It's quite an incredible story. But God doesn't explain. He doesn't correct this formula. The friends have got this simple formula that if you do bad stuff, bad stuff happens to you. And God doesn't say, actually, guys, you, you've missed out a, a section of the formula. Actually, the universe works like this. If you input this, you output this. There's no explanation. And that really reminds me of Jesus. Did these Galileans sin more than others? Is that why they suffered in this way? Those guys who were crushed by the tower, were they worse sinners than their neighbours? I tell you, no. And that's it. No explanation, no alternative formula. But he doesn't stop there. And he does go on to give his audience a different way of responding to these stories that they've heard, a different way of interpreting the implications of suffering. And I wanna cover that in a moment, but before I do, my friend Val is gonna share with us a story of some really intense suffering that happened in her life, in her family. I remember when this happened. I remember desperately praying that God would come through for Val in this situation. And as I watched this testimony earlier, I was weeping and I'm sure that you'll be moved by it too. I hope that you're not just moved in your emotions, but I hope that as Val shares, you see something of the character of God who is with us in suffering. And when I come back, I'm gonna talk about the three different responses that we can have when we hear about terrible things that happen. Hello, good morning everyone. I just want to share with you um, something I went through eight years ago. Some pain I had to endure. Just two days before Christmas, I had a phone call to see my parents both my parents were attacked at their home the previous night. My mother was so badly beaten, she was in and out of consciousness. My dad, not that severe. Every few hours, I was getting phone calls with updates to hear that my mom was deteriorating. I asked God a lot of questions, waiting to get answers. I remember on the third day, I started praying. I prayed. And I asked God to heal her, if not to take her. 
because I didn't want to see her suffering. I keep on praying that prayer over and over, begging God. Eventually, I got a flight. It was the longest 12 hours flight of my life. I want to comfort my dad as he was blaming himself. I want to go and help my siblings to share the pain, to get the best doctors, to cry with them, to hug my mom and dad. I want to get all his feelings out. When I got there, I found out that my mom had passed away an hour before I landed. I screamed. But in the midst of all the confusion, I heard God telling me that she's not in pain anymore. I stood still and say thank you. So brothers and sisters, I just want to remind you that God is in the storm with us. Also to take you back to Isaiah 43 verse 2 remind us that when we go through the fire we will not be born not if but when it's a let us know that we will go through trials and tribulations but we must have that mustard seed faith to know that god will not leave us nor forsake us thank you Thank you, Val, for sharing that with us. We really appreciate it. Turning back to the passage that we're looking at today, I want us to think about how we respond when we hear bad news, when we hear about terrible things happening to people. The guys that brought these stories to Jesus, their fixation was on whether the sin of the people involved explained the suffering they were going through. And in the Bible, we see two dangers with that. Having that kind of response, asking that question can make us pharisaical or it can make us fearful. If I was a bit more of a pro, those would begin with the same letter, but bear with me, it's the same sound. So pharisaical or fearful. To be pharisaical, to, to be a Pharisee, well, those were a group of people who started off with a good intention of pleasing God. But along the way, that desire to please God morphed into a form of self-righteousness. And that self-righteousness became judgmentalism and hypocrisy. That sense that I'm all right, I'm better than you. You've got yourself into all these messes with your sin and your failings. I'm all right. I'm not like that. I wonder if 
you've ever felt like that when you hear about catastrophes in the lives of others. Jesus told a really powerful story of a guy walking around with a massive plank sticking out of his eye who wanted to go out of his way to tell somebody else about the tiny speck in theirs. And that's what it can be like when we're pharisaical. Actually, we're not seeing the world as it really is. We think that we're all right and others are bad. And that's why they get what they deserve. But we're mistaken. The Bible teaches us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. The Pharisees were sinners. If these bad things were happening to sinners, then they should happen to all of us. No one deserves death more than me. But as we hear about the things that happen to others, if our response is to blame them, if our response is to put a moral spin on things like this virus, on natural disasters, on catastrophes, on illness, we need to ask ourselves, are we being pharisaical? Are we being self-righteous? If we are, Jesus would have strong words for us. But the other extreme, the other danger, if we start to believe that all of the suffering that happens to people is a result of their sin, is actually some of us have pretty difficult lives. Maybe as you've been listening to this, you've been thinking about your life. Maybe as you heard the story of Job, you felt, well, that's, that feels like me. I've had this happen and that happened. Maybe every time something bad happens to you, you think that you're to blame. Maybe you didn't get that interview because you didn't look after your aged mother enough. Maybe you got sick because God saw what you were getting up to on the internet. We can become so fearful when we live in this mindset that the tragedies that happen to people are a direct result of the sin of those people. But the same answer is given to you. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And people whose lives sound like a catalogue of disasters are not necessarily any more sinful than the people who seem to have it easy because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if we're pharisaical, that's really uncomfortable. It's disturbing because it reminds us that we're no better than anyone. But if we're fearful, then hearing that is like medicine. We're not good enough, but we're not uniquely evil. We're not worse than everybody else. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if we hear a tragedy, and if we're not to ascribe moral explanations to it, if we're not to say that it's because they were worse sinners than everybody else, how then can we respond? If we're not going to be pharisaical, if we're not going to be fearful, 
Jesus calls us to be forgiven. Jesus says in, in response to both these stories, he's very clear that these things did not happen because the people involved were worse sinners than anybody else. But he says this, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. He takes what's happened and turns it into a warning. Let this remind you that life is short and uncertain, but there is an opportunity to repent. It just means to, to turn to God. And as we do that, he forgives us. When we hear about terrible things, when we're confronted with reminders that life is short, we can be fearful, we can be pharisaical, or we can be forgiven. We can let it show us the fragility of life. I think it's so easy living in the era that we live in to think that we're immortal, and this especially applies to people who are young, because medicine's really great these days, it can do so much. But we're not immortal, none of us are. And none of us know how long we've got to live. And I'm not saying that to freak you out. Jesus never conjured up like bogeymen under the stairs. He didn't emotionally manipulate people, but he told people as it was. And the truth is that life is short and unexpected. And yet there is time today. There is time to repent and turn to God and to receive forgiveness. And that is what Jesus says. That is what he says they can do in response to what they've seen. In response to hearing these stories. And then what will happen next? Well, if we think about once we've been forgiven, once we've been restored in relationship with God, the Bible promises us that we'll be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And in the book of Galatians, it tells us this about the fruit, the outworking of the spirit of God in our lives. It will be this, Galatians 5, 22. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so if we heed the warning if we take seriously the fact that life is short and if we repent and turn to God, we are forgiven. Not pharisaical, not fearful, but forgiven. And then we're fruitful. And actually I think that then means that we respond appropriately to the suffering of others instead of constantly thinking, well, what, is, what does that mean for me? What does this virus mean for me? What does this tragedy over here mean for me? What does this building collapse mean for me? We're able to respond in love and compassion. We're able to serve and give and comfort others in the fruit of the spirit. I was reading a sermon by a Victorian preacher, by Spurgeon, about this passage that we've looked at today. And it was really interesting. He was preaching in 1861. And one of the things that he kind of was going on about was that, you know, history will will mark this year as a year of particular tragedy. And I thought, not my history books, 
I don't think I was ever taught that 1861 was a particularly bad year. I'm not knocking Spurgeon, but it's very easy for us to think that we live in uniquely bad times. And it's easy to be overwhelmed by that. But actually, bad stuff has happened throughout history. People have faced difficulty, illness, wars, natural disasters. And we need to have a response to these things. And Jesus makes it very clear that we are not to blame the victims of tragedies. We're not to say that it was their sin that caused it. Jesus is unequivocal about that. I tell you no, and he says it twice. But he offers us a different way to respond. To respond with repentance and to be forgiven. So I want to leave you with that question of how are you going to respond to tragedy far away or close to home? What feelings does it cause to rise up in you? What explanations do you comfort yourself with? And if you're particularly scared, if you're feeling like time is short and death confronts you as you watch the news and talk to others, then listen to the invitation. Jesus doesn't ask you to do something unless it has an effect, unless it's possible. And he tells you, you can repent, you can turn to God today and receive forgiveness. How are you going to respond to tragedy?